Hello and welcome to the Marvel Wrap, a 20-part podcast where we go through the chronological Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in preparation for the Avengers Endgame in April. My name is Simon Collum, I'm a writer, a podcaster, I I watch all the MCU movies, all that kind of stuff, but I am supported uh, by the writer and surrealist doctor, Dr. Sabina Stent. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I had a lovely little soundbite for you, but it has failed me. So you're just going to get my regular voice today. I'm very, I apologize. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. No, Not that, please. Not her again. I feel like I've been quite low on energy the past couple of weeks with the podcast. So I just feel, I think, why was I so, I was a bit quiet, wasn't I, the last couple of weeks? I don't know. But. Anyway, oh God. you sound, you sound <laughs> like you're, you're amped. You're I'm amped up for this episode. Tonight. I'm hyped up. Come on. Yeah. It's going to be good. <laughs> good stuff. And what about yourself, Amon? How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Uh, excited to get into Gardens of the Galaxies Volumes 1 and 2. Yeah, well, this is one of the few episodes where we're going to be covering both Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So two films in one. And we'll be talking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, season two later on as well. Uh, we are on Twitter. We're at Marvel Rap. Uh, we can be emailed at marvelrappodcast at gmail.com. Uh, this episode is the Yondu episode. We could call it like the James Gunn episode. But the news no, is... No, it's about Yondu. It is about Yondu. Yondu. Ultimately, with regards to James Gunn, it seems like it's his script for Volume 3 anyway. So, you know, he's still involved. It's not like unique. Yondu is very much unique to these episodes. So uh, the Yondu episode, Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, coming up. Guardians of the Galaxy was released on the 31st of July in 2014. It took $773 million, directed by James Gunn. This was a film about a tree, a raccoon, a normal dude, Chris Pratt, which at the time we were all like, I guess we, he's from a TV show. Hey, he might Andy be all Dwyer. right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and a green girl and, and a big strong guy. Um this was a weird one. I definitely didn't know what to expect. Um, what about yourself, uh, Amon? What about you? Yeah, no, it was it was very interesting. I mean, even as somebody who knows uh, my comics, um, and you can ask us to pretty much almost every sort of big Marvel fan, the knowledge a few years ago before Guardians of the Galaxy came out of the Guardians of the Galaxy was limited at best. Um and just on paper, this film sounds completely and utterly stupid and ridiculous. Um, I mean, you've got a talking raccoon, a sentient tree, and the universe is saved by a dance-off and four people holding hands. If you read the script before you saw Guardians of the Galaxy, you'd be like, there's no way I'm greenlighting this thing. Um, but I, I guess the, the first... the, the how public opinion sort of began to shift in this film's favor 
uh, is really we have to mention that first trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy, which was released at Comic-Con. The film was about two weeks into, shoot- into shooting, but Marvel put together a trailer, and it was a trailer that had Uga Chaka in the background. And oh, yeah. within like 24 hours, everyone was like, I want to see this film. It looks interesting. Um, and it looks fun. And everyone had Uga Chaka in their heads. And mm. and sort of and then, and then the, the more you saw of it, the more you the more intrigued you got. And then by the time it was released, everything changed. I mean, Marvel had already sort of you know carved out a really good space in you know the film world, and it it, it, it had proven several times that it had a formula that was really really working. But Guardians of the Galaxy was the film that proved that Marvel could do anything, and. Basically, the world was the oyster after, after that point. Because if you can turn these characters into a household franchise with, uh, you know, off of two hours, like, this, like the way this film does, it's it's special. It's special. So I think you're, when you talk about, again, even at this point, um, before this film in particular, um, I was still very much like, like you said, they have a formula and it works. Um, but to pull this off, I remember having a lot of conversations uh, with my brother and with my family and stuff about, you know, this if this, this might be the one where they kind of drop the ball in a big way. Like, the, you know, it could really not work. And, and for me personally, that first advert, I remember getting a sense of the tone. But even I was a bit, even for me, I, I wasn't sold as much on that. I remember everybody being psyched for it at the time. Uh, but the whole you're welcome catch phrase at the or the kind of uh, line at the end i was very much like oh it's so smug it goes it feeds into why i don't like tony stark and i just like that same <laughs> oh, oh, how are you bringing tony stark into this conversation right now <laughs> honestly simon good lord no, okay. no, 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 no. like it's that same but it's that same type of smug smug sod kind of attitude which i was like oh not a not a guy like that you know please on you and say so, yeah very much uh, oh, hesitant dear. going into it uh you know for, for a lot of reasons <laughs> what about yourself Sabina did you were you sold on that trailer yourself I was I was very much like you I was very much like what is this but then again you had me at talking raccoon and sentient tree because to me that is they are just like if if you put that in a film I will watch it um obviously working on surrealism you see all sorts of things and 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 so to me that wasn't that big a deal I was just I didn't know anything about the characters I knew Chris Pratt as Andy Dwyer who was kind of lovable to some extent goofball I didn't I couldn't see him as a Marvel you know hero um so but then like you were saying I remember when every I remember when everyone went nuts for that for that um bit of trailer but Uga Chaka has that effect. Do you remember um, when Annie McBeal used it, The Dancing Baby? It just became like a phenomenon. You put that song um, in a trailer, in a, a TV show, it will just become... It's just got something about it that that song does. That song, that song I always associate with Reservoir Dogs. It's on the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack and I listen to it loads. So I, so that for me wasn't like, I'd never heard that song before. I was like, oh, and ripping off Reservoir Dogs oh as well. Gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm not proud. I'm not proud. Yeah. So obviously we had that massive hype of Winter Soldier 
And you just think, what is this? <laughs> you keep following that. You know, are they crazy? Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't go into it with any expectations. And yeah, I was, I was quite pleasantly surprised by the result. It's fun. It's, yeah. So in this, of course, uh, it starts in 1988 and Peter Quill, the kid, and then his mum dying, and then he's zapped. It's off. the most traumatic beginning of any of like one of the most films in in recent memory. That scene just got me stuck, got me off on the wrong foot a little bit with the Guardians. I don't know, but it just I was like, "What the hell was that?" Well, I think when when he's oh. um when he's when when he's on the planet as an adult and he kind of puts on his music and he's jumping around and dancing. I think that's when the real um, fun of, yeah. of the film comes through. But you're right; that first introduction is very like um, muted and kind of so somber. But I think that's kind of again, and it kind of goes against, obviously, uh, not goes against, but like you don't ex- anticipate that, do you? You know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a you know punch to begin a film. I kind of yeah. That's that very you know. I I found that quite yeah. Ooh. A bit un- uh, upsetting, very upsetting to be to be honest. So, I think uh, when we meet, obviously bringing all these characters together is what what the first act of the film is all about. And I think yeah. this is, I mean, it's very cleverly done. I think what's interesting is, of course, we we're in Xandar, which uh, comes up mm. again in the MCU later on, uh, and of course John C. Riley and Glenn Close. Um, so and these are they, they never appear in in anymore. Um, but of course, they they've got a quite a great like little moment to shine here. Um, and of course, they're all every single one of them. Peter Quill, Gamora, all of them are after things because they're. It, you feel anyway. You think it's about greed that they all just want one thing to get money for themselves. Peter Quill's collecting stuff to just get money. Raccoon and uh, Rocket and. Uh, group they're just trying to get their stuff so they can get money and you feel like that's the momentum for it so it's quite a they're not very likable i think in that initial you know in that when you first meet them does that make sense well i i i'm not sure i agree with that um i mean when you sort of boil it down to their essential characteristics i guess i'm not not saying that but i mean i get like you know they are sort of you know thieves um, the characters, but when you're introduced to Groot and Rocket, for instance, that's a hilarious scene. They're great. Drinking yeah. from and the well. I love even that. Even with, I mean, just to, just to rewind even further back than that, when you first meet Chris Pratt Star-Lord, when he puts on that Walkman and the title drops, if you're not on board with the film on that moment, then you're probably not going to like the film because that sort of encapsulates the entire tone and what the film is going for in that sort of opening sort of prologue sequence when he's in Morag. Um, again, he's, 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 I mean, all, all of these characters, I, I think, are characters that we quickly and easily grow to love over the course of the movie. Um, so I would never sort of, uh, sort of say that they were unlikable at any point, really, for me. Yeah, okay. I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. The, Unlikable, likable is probably the wrong word, or unlikable is the wrong word. But I just think you can imagine pitching it ever so slightly wrong, oh, yeah. and it might not work. Like you know what I mean? Because of what they do, like they are thieves, they the could have very yeah, yeah, they could very easily go the wrong way with it. But they play it very well, and then very quickly you 
you get a sense of actually there's way more to them, that sense of their history, that sense of where they're from. And as we go through both films, um, that is the heart in this film is so is such a beating so heart. So much heart. And so, so and it's such much. a lovely kind of um part to 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 the films i think it's something which i know i overlooked i think on my first watches but the more i've seen them you the more I've, the heart the more i've enjoyed it um, how could you overlook the heart no no i mean I'm, that is like because that I, is the essence of these films it's a film it's a film about really family they again, they are again, it's to, family to, to clarify i got yeah. I, you it, in the end, yeah. you know. Um, but I think when you first watch it, the kind of humour and the fun and the cockiness of the characters, um, I think for me, it, it put me off it a bit on that first watch. Um, but like I said, I've definitely come round to it um, over the last time, last few times I've watched it. And I think when we get to know them, when we get to understand why they're doing what they're doing, um, it's even more powerful. I think what in particular I think is interesting about it is that in the first film it sets up that these are all people from really broken families and really broken backgrounds in all sorts of different ways. And the idea of that they're coming together and working together and effectively find love in that family unit is is a really profound sentiment, which again is something which, you know, when you go past the humour, when you go past the kind of marvel and the the kind of ridiculousness of, of, of a kind of sci-fi there's a that that central point is what binds them all together and it leads into both both guardians of the galaxy films but it's established here in the backgrounds and how they all come together and i think that's something which again like i said the more i've watched the more i think wow that's 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 exceptionally strong the first time i watched it i'm surprised i'm you know i'm quite surprised that that sort of had to set in for you over um a couple of of watches because I think the you know the moment they start working together you sort of see this bond forming and I think that final moment with Groot when he kind of you know becomes like the the orb when he forms a cocoon I think if you don't cocoon sorry that's what that's what I mean thank you um and I think that kind of scene when you see that that is the scene when you kind of realize that or even probably before then um these they are such they are family they are a unit they are you know they're you know protecting each other they they think they're going to die together and i think it is a it is a film like you've said with huge hearts with huge you know it's family you have this lovely kind of thing with rocket and groot who who even though they say at the beginning that Groot is kind of Rocket's muscle, but he's not really the muscle, you know, he's a is a, a sweet softy. Um and you have this lovely which continues throughout um Guardians 2 and then even Infinity War with um Rocket kind of looking after Groot the way he cares for him. And I think it's very sweet. I think it's I think it's it's um it's a it's a film about kind of um what's the word even like relationships with people friendships family love but it's not not necessarily always romantic love it's just a film about love. What do we think about um, the villain? So we've got Ronan the Accuser, who's promised that Xandar would be destroyed if he brought uh, Thanos the orb, but then kind of gets 
power crazy and thinking that he can just do it himself. Um, what do we think of Ronan? Perfectly adequate. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, those words come to mind. He's not a bad villain, I'd say. Um, I think Lee Pace is doing as good a job as he can, uh, trying to make him stand out. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, he's definitely you know nowhere near top of the list when it comes to MCU villains. That being said, I am intrigued to see um, what more they do with him in Captain Marvel. It's pleasant surprise that we're going to see him. And we're going to see Corvat, who's played by Jimon Honsu in this film, also in Captain Marvel. Uh, They are the villains in in this film. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how much they add to those characters and what our feelings towards those characters will be post that that movie. Uh, but for this movie, I mean, again, they're just they're just perfectly fine. Um, nothing much to them to make them really stand out for me. It's going to be interesting to see how they kind of because I rewatching it, you kind of remember, you know that obviously Ronan's going to be in Captain Marvel, so you're kind of thinking, you know, how what is he like now? When are they going to lead up to that? And of course, the setup is immediately that he's working with Thanos. Um, if anything, Thanos is somewhat you know, kind of pushed to the side, isn't he? When, when kind of Ronan decides to do it all on his own back. Mm. Um, so you, so you can imagine they might set up when he met Thanos or when Thanos met him at the, during Captain Marvel, perhaps. Potentially, they could. potentially for sure. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. Thanos on his space chair. Um, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a, lot, a lot of great memes and, uh, gifts for that sort of thing. Uh, because, you know, um, obviously it took, Thanos a decade to get off his space chair and actually get to work as it were. Um, but yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I did like the the little bits that we did have with Thanos. Um, obviously the, the CGI isn't as good as it eventually became in infinity war, but it was still impressive and you still uh, menacing. And it was good to get that early look at the character um, as, a, as a nice sort of a foreshadowing. A nice bit of foreshadowing for the MCU. I think it's interesting that um, Karen Gillan um, as Nebula, she said herself that Nebula is the female villain of this film. Um, and I always think Nebula is so fascinating. Um, I can't wait to see her t- team up with, with um, Simon's favourite Avenger, Tony Stark, in, um, in Endgame. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking forward to seeing what she's going to do because she's so she's so good. She's great in the role. I, I agree that she's a fascinating character, but I don't think in both Guardians 1 and Guardians 2, I don't think they do enough with her. No, they or, don't. Or, 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 or they don't do enough with her and Gamora um, because they, they are sort of like a package deal. That, that, that relationship is very... Um, intriguing and endlessly fascinating but there is more but again you know taking them as two separate films i don't think they do enough on either occasion with those characters i was Um, quite surprised re-watching it how little she is in the first one because i when i think of nebula i think of like he said i probably piece all her bits together into like one big into one paste them all on one page and I think oh yeah that oh but that was in that one and and yeah I I can see like you say that there is there is nowhere near enough of her considering how long that makeup takes to do for the role you know 
put her in more things, put her in more scenes. But I think she's going to have a bigger part to play in, in Endgame. I think Nebula is like right up there with Loki as one of the best characters in the entire MCU. And I know she hasn't in any way had enough screen time in comparison no. to Loki. Um, but whenever she is on screen, I am, I am, I'm there. I'm like, you are a fascinating character. I want to know more about Nebula. Nebula could do so much. And granted, I mean, they just, she is what she is in the context and it's fine. Uh, There's other stories and plots going on around her, but as a character, I find her fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in this first one, of course, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't appear very much. I think we'll get, when we talk about volume two, we'll talk about her more there, but um yeah, I mean, yeah, the, she she is right up there with Loki for me in terms of most 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 engaging and interesting and complex characters, which is mad because yeah, I mean, yeah, that those I don't know why, but that's just I I get it, I get her, and I I, I love it. Who who's your favorite Guardians Guardian then? Easily, um, Rocket Raccoon. Um, it's my favorite Guardian across both films, I think. Um, and we have to say. Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper, Man oh my god, I mean, we just heard this guy, I'm sure like everyone on this chat has seen A Star Is Born at this point, and he yeah. goes deep with his voice in that movie, and to think that that same dude goes, uh, also voices Rocket Raccoon, is really impressive, um, you know, I've, you, I've, I've watched yeah. sort of the, the B-roll, where you can actually see Bradley Cooper um, sort of voicing this character and he gets fully into it. It's really impressive to watch. I highly recommend going to YouTube and seeking it out. Um, but the things that he does to his voice to make Rocket sound so unlike him and so much like Rocket, so distinctively Rocket, is really impressive to me. And it's one of those things where you almost had to sort of go online and like look at it. Like if, if I didn't know Bradley Cooper was voicing Rocket Raccoon before I watched this film, I probably would not have. It probably would not have clocked with me watching the film because his voice is so distinctive. It's very, very impressive. And just as a, just on a character level, uh, Rocket Raccoon. Out of all the Guardians, he's he's. If, if, if one of the Guardians was, was going to get a solo movie, Rocket Raccoon would be the one to give it to. Um, because I mean, there's still so much. I want to know about him um, in terms of how he got the way he did. We haven't sort of really the, the Guardians movie. The Guardians movies haven't really focused on that um, a lot. Um, Rocket Raccoon is easily my favorite character. I, I, you know, I I remember when Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel were like announced as these voices to these right. characters and before i'd seen the film instinctively i just thought to myself i'll bet that's just because you know bradley cooper and uh Vin Diesel, they're big names you know what i mean and just attaching them on the poster of a film with the the, the tree person and all this kind of stuff will just bring in more people but I, I i'm completely with you you watch that footage of bradley cooper doing this voice i mean it, it is just mind-blowing how he just twists his body and energizes himself. I mean, he must be exhausted uh, from recording the vocals for Rocket Raccoon, which is mad. But it's like, you know, and then, and then of course, yeah, like you said, watch The Star is Born, it's just madness. But, um, yeah, no, uh, I, I completely get that. I love him. I think he's great. What about your favourite, uh, Sabina? As Zaman as said, it's, it's got to be Rocket. Wow. I just love him because he's... He's vicious, he's catty, his 
sensitive. He's the most um, nurturing one of of all of them, I, I think, to some extent. Um, I just, I think he's, I love him. I just love Rocky because one minute he's cuddly, one minute he could bite, bite you, mm-hmm. you know, claw your leg off like a cat. And I think he's, he's, he's nippy, he's, he's sharp, um, he's loud. He's, he is like, um, um, I don't know, Bradley Cooper said that himself, he said he's like the Joe, he's like uh, Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. He's that kind of dialogue, that quick, um, you know, snap. But yeah, it's got to be Rocket. And also, can we like also shout out to our favorite blue space pirate ravager, Yondu? But he's kind of a, he's in this one. He is kind of a, a, a you know a villain. He's a baddie. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're we're worried about what he's going to do. We're I wasn't about, worried. Yeah. I just love. I was like, I love this guy. I love him. As soon as he came on screen, I was like, I love this guy. He, you know, I just I don't care. About- Oh, Peter Quill. It sounds really bad to say, but I think Peter Quill is kind of like the least interesting one in this film. Is that really bad to say? I don't think it's bad, to, think say. It's bad to say. I'm going to say it. I don't care. I'm going to say it. Okay, because I you've think I've, I've just said it because there are other. You've got a cast that's like a talk. You know, you've got a tree. You got even Drax is interesting because you want to know. You know, I'm quite. You'd like to know more about his his background, obviously, with his family. You know, you've got Gamora, you've got Nebula, and then you've got Peter Quill. Um, and and some reason, some to some extent, you can compare him to like. I'm just going to call Tony Simon's favorite from now on. Um, you can compare him. You can compare him to Tony to some respect because they are a lot alike. Um, but there's something I don't know. I just find, yeah, I just find Peter the least interesting. I don't know. And I think there's there's when you got a film like this, there's there's the cast is so big. You got space pirates. You know, you got sentient trees. And I think, dude, you know. <laughs> you know, up your game a little bit. No, he's he's good in the role, and but yeah, Rocket and Yondu for me, and I love the I love the tag team that eventually that does eventually happen. Um, Rocket and Groot are the stars of uh, my favorite scene across either movie, and that's the kiln escape in the first movie. <gasps> um, when Rocket gets that gun yeah. and says, "Oh yeah," yeah and then just starts lighting everything up, it's such a cool moment. Um, and I really, really enjoyed to that scene in particular. Um, but there's a lot of sort of great action stuff across the two movies as well. It's good. And before, I mean, we'll have to obviously we can talk uh, a lot of the things we're going to talk about kind of cover both films. Um, but just with regards to the way it looks, I mean, I just love it. I mean, we we joked about it before about how I didn't like the grayness of Winter Soldier, uh, but of course, oh, this. I mean, there is something so alive about this, which is so. Again, it's a careful thing to do. Again, you go too far and. Uh, things look weird and uh, you have situations where people look at Will Smith as the genie and find it looking a bit weird. Uh, But here, everyone looks really, really good. Every alien of all these different colourful kind of things going on and, you know, the kind of orange liquid splashing around and uh, the yellow jail suits and it just, everything fits so well. It's just a world that can kind of go toe to toe with the type of things that are set up in things like Star Wars and Star Trek. And I just, uh, I love the look of it. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no matter how mm. fantastical everything looks, everyone, everything feels lived in. Um, and that's a testament to James Gunn's direction. Um, what should we talk about the uh, costumes? Uh, Alexandra Byrne did the costumes for the first uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, and she was someone who we've discussed in previous episodes. She worked on Thor. She worked on Ren Dissemble. When when she came to design these costumes, um, at the time Chris Pratt was still a little on the heavier side. He hadn't, you know, become as um, as toned as you know as as he is in the film so she had to create his costume sort of anticipating what his body would look like and that's something that um designers very often have to deal with and and it's not um it's something that they should always be given credit for because people's bodies change all the time um sometimes obviously they've had to like do things on measurements but this time he was still in the process of of working out so he was continually changing um so she said that um when it came to designing this it was the source materials are always the comics and she um she wanted to create something that was um in a way, kind of like the deep V-neck he wears. That was a bit like Han Solo. You know, there was that little touch of Han Solo in there. Um, but so she also had to, um, it wasn't just the principal cast. She had to come up with all the costumes. And this is a very diverse um, looking cast. So you've got alien races, you've got different planets, you've got different skin tones, you've got planets with different weather and you've got different cultures. Um, and it's interesting you say the use of colour because she said with this, um, it was a lot to do with colour. And she found as she worked, her use of colour became more and more instinctive. Um, she talked a lot about Quill and how her... Um, a lot about his coat because he has that that look that kind of in the first film especially when he's dancing listening to the Walkman so he had to look sort of park cowboy you know biker rock star retro spacesuit tech battered and new so all the things in one go which is quite um, you know obviously for a designer to work on something like that it's it's quite different um but even the Ravagers uniforms, I found it fascinating that she said she wanted the Ravagers to have their own distinct look. Um, and obviously, because Yondu's the leader, he had a very personalised look. Then all the other Ravagers, depending on their generation, they all had um, personalised, adapted uniforms, depending on which tier they were in. Um, but... Yeah, I think there's a lot there's there's a lot of information there out there, and I think it's really interesting the way she she approached this because it's all about color, it's all about space, it's all about. I love it. Know, I love it. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it looks good. Yeah, she absolutely. And it's, a com- yeah. and it's interesting. It's because the costumes in the second one there was a there was a bit of a tonal shift, but we'll get into that when we get onto the second film. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll talk more. We'll talk about the music in both films because it's the same composer uh, of mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy towards the end of, of or both talking about both films. Um, are there any final thoughts before we move into Volume Two? No, just the the end is really sweet. Just that ending, oh, and the bit the bit where the bit where um, Drax is like petting the upset rocket. Oh. <laughs> 
my heart. The whole the whole end of uh, the the film is obviously co- it's constantly reiterating that kind of sense of people working together, people working as a team. Obviously, the Guardians themselves as a team, the Nova Corps all together as a team, and then holding hands as a team. That idea of unity working together, you know, and all that. And I like that. I like when these themes kind of run through it out throughout the whole thing. And that's definitely something which it constantly reiterates. Yeah, it's just completely charming. And Marvel Marvel knew it to the point where the film's sort of final title card is the Guns of the Galaxy will return. You don't put that in unless you're confident of the product you have. And they deserve to be confident because they had a winner. And again, to 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 take those characters and to come up with this, um, one of the sort of biggest franchises currently going is a super impressive feat. Uh, we should also, before we sort of move on to the second one, we've got to give up some love to Nicole Perman, who did the original script treatment for this movie. Um, and I do yeah. think, because you know, James Gunn wrote the second movie by himself, you can feel the lack of Nicole Perlman, Perlman's influence on Guns of the Galaxy Volume 2 script. Um, so, yeah, I think Nicole's work on this is, is not sung often enough, um, but it's, it, was, it was really sort of necessary and really, really good uh, for this film. Yeah. Right, okay, with that in mind, uh, let's move on after a short break uh, to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. then the reason why we're putting both Guardians of the Galaxy uh, episodes together is because chronologically they follow very, there's only a very short amount of time between both films, despite the fact uh, that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was released in tw- on the 28th of April in 2017. So only it's the first Phase 3 film we're kind of covering, but it, chronologically it follows straight on after the first Guardians of the Galaxy. It did take $864 million at the box office, so a huge success, you know, creeping ever closer to that $1 billion, but not quite getting there. James Gunn back in the director's seat. Um um, uh, do you know what? When I first saw this, guys, I I re- I liked it more than the first one. Me too. And, wow. and that's something which I've I, I I felt. I know this is what I thought. Amon, you didn't feel that. I did, did you? not. I did not. Um, like I, hmm, I I did enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. I thought it was a fun movie watching experience, but I immediately came out of it and I knew that it wasn't as satisfying um, as the first movie for a few reasons. Uh, the, the chief of which was that the the, the screenplay was not as tight. Um, and also the screenplay felt like it was stopping and starting uh, a whole bunch throughout the movie. Um, they split the Guardians up in this movie. Um, and it's one of those ones where... You can. It reminds me of Iron Man three in that the goals of the screenplay and what the film is trying to say and achieve uh, are very admirable, um, and you can see what the film is going for absolutely. But it's nowhere near organic, and you know within you know, the start of the scene, two characters are sort of antagonistic towards each other. The end of that scene 
then they're good with each other. It's that sort of thing. And that happens on like a couple of occasions and, and that and that bugged me. Um, but the themes of the movie are really, really great. And this is by far the most personal movie in the MCU. Um, it's also by far the most, the, 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 the saddest movie in the MCU also. Um, and those emotions come through very, very strongly. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. But for me, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to sort of talk about it more, but definitely Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was a step down from Volume 1. You see, uh, uh, the, I, I remember when it first came out, there was a lot of kind of like, oh, I don't really like it as much and all that mm. type of thing. Um, but, but, and I, I felt differently, but rewatching it again, I, I, I'm reaffirmed. I still feel like I prefer it. The main two things which make it stronger for me, obviously the thematic issues, as you said, are, are strong, but ultimately Drax is in it from the get go. Like it takes a third of the film before we kind of hang out with Drax. And I much prefer uh, the fun of baby group as opposed to uh, the the kind of older group from the first one. So those two characters, which are so integral to the film, are like here throughout and constantly are just a joy to watch as characters. Um, You might be right with regards to the structural things. I might, maybe I'm just, you know, dismissing that, but I'm just having so much more fun with these characters and especially as well, I think is, you know, things like Gamora and Peter Quill, they're much more kind of comfortable in their roles, I guess. I mean, not that they weren't in the first one, I guess, but you know what I mean? I think together, like every single person, I just enjoy watching and enjoy seeing them all. I I agree with that. I I'd also add that it's probably the funnier movie of the two. Um, you've got, you know, all the stuff with baby Groot, as you say, you've got taser face, which is just comedy gold every time. Um, and yeah, I would I would agree with you on on that point too. I would say though, with Drax, as fun as he is, he's the only character not to really have an arc, and that was a that was a sticking point for me. Um, yeah, and that might be that might be an example of the um, problematic writing. I just uh, I but I just enjoyed it more. You know, what I mean, I just really the, the fun of it. I, I was with more. Um, Sabina, what about you? I'm. Like you, I did, and I do, in probably enjoy it more than the first one. Um, even though I loved, you know, full grown Groot, I love Baby Groot. I adore Baby Groot with all my heart, and I think that beginning, the the way the film opens with with Baby Groot dancing, just I think that's just an a lovely, opening. lovely little opening. Um, it works very well. I think it's very sweet. Um, and I also like having, I like how, as we touched on in the previous one, um, Rocket sort of, you know, it's like, as, as you would nurture, like a little tree, he nurtures, <laughs> looks after Groot. Um, I love the tag team of Yondu and Rocket and Groot. It's got probably, this film has probably got my one of my all-time favourite scenes in the MCU, which... With Yondu's <laughs> flying arrow. Oh um, God, that's, that's an incredible sequence. That's yeah, so good. That's so good, and the music fits perfectly. Um, that is one of the. That's one of the scenes I, I could watch over and over again. I love when they're trying to tell Groot to get his fin for his head. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's coming back with his underwear. <laughs> he's coming back with all the the wrong things. Um, and I think it's, I think little baby Groot, he looks so sweet, but he can, 
bite that <laughs> that little tree is rough <laughs> and um <laughs> i think it's it's it makes some really lovely um funny moments but it is oh my gosh it is one of the saddest it is probably the saddest one i mean the last 10 minutes the one thing which is a major upgrade on the first movie and that is the villain um yeah, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is fantastic, fantastic casting. Um, Do you remember when it was announced that Kurt Russell was going to be Peter Quill's dad, and the internet went, Twitter went crazy? They said, "This is the best bit yeah, of casting. Yeah, it's it's perfect. It, perfect." Called ego. What? <laughs> it's just, it's brilliant. The fact that I mean, obviously, I knew that we were were getting uh, ego. Uh, in the comics, the full term is Ego, the Living Planet. Never in wow. my wildest dreams did I actually think that we'd get to see, you know, Ego as the planet and we'd cut to a shot of Ego with eyes on, like, a big sort of planet. We actually got that image in this movie. The fact that the MCU has graduated to a stage where we can get that sort of imagery and people won't sort of think twice about it is it's just... In, it's, it's insane. And that bit when it goes into Pac-Man and it just, there's like all these, I'm going to build a 50-foot Pac-Man and there's some really, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's good. It's, I like this one. And I, yeah, Kurt Russell's good in this. And I think there's some nice bits with, with Gamora and Nebula's relationship. You have that, you have that great yeah. moment between Nebula and Gamora when she says, oh. you were the one who wanted to win and I just yeah. wanted a sister. And it's just, it's really heartbreaking. But again, I mean, I just love that dynamic between those two. Nebula doing anything, I'm just like, I'm It's there. a film <laughs> about a dysfunctional family. And there's, you know, there's so much love in that family. But they have, they're all dysfunctional creatures. And they're just trying their best. Um, and they clash heads sometimes. And really, that's that's the thing. It's just, it's about sibling rivalry. It's about... Um, wanting you know there's quite a lot of sort of dad issues in oh, the absolutely. Film because peter yeah peter peter's got you know there's a lot of dad issues there um i, I would i would go further yeah. than that i think there's a whole thing about uh white heterosexual men and that superiority to everything that kind of arrogance says it kind of touches on the idea of domestic abuse with the idea of how he literally killed his mother to fulfill what he believed was right there's it's some horrible, really yeah. stuff in there which granted you know it's it's a fun film but i think it there's a, there's a level to this i think you can touch on where it's much darker than that and it, it you know this is somebody you know to to be able to explain why ego is a bad person um, it, you know, it's complicated and it is It's very complex. Shakespearean and, it, and it's very Greek tragedy and it's it goes back to all these old stories, you know, the, the son is killing the father for killing the mother and it's, yeah, it's it's the oldest, one of the oldest kind of, um, But yeah. of, of course, you know, the justification, you know, he was going around to all these plants and sleeping with every single bunny and procreating with all these other, you know what I mean? I think, you know, that's dark. That's dark stuff, yeah. you know what I mean? But I love it. I think it's great. And I also like the fact that I was thinking when I was watching it that the idea that celestial genes are in Peter means that in some respects, Quill is kind of a bit like Thor. But then no. I think by the end, of <laughs> that, like he, doesn't, he doesn't have it anymore. He loses, he loses that chance. Really, yeah, doesn't he? But, <laughs> he does. Definitely does. Um, but also the scale of it is pretty massive. Like I was watching this thinking, I mean, the end battle for one does go on quite a long time, but the scale of his destruction is obviously 
you know, universe wide. Mm. Um, and that blob stuff coming out of all these things, you could have had a whole Avengers movie wrapped around this plot. So it's sometimes almost, it's almost a bit kind of like, oh, but it's just this one film. I mean, even stuff happens on Earth, which never gets picked mm. up on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and yet you have that blob stuff all coming all over the planet Earth and everywhere else. So it's weird that this story, which is so big, it is ultimately uh, put ultimately just in this one film. I mean, we never hear about yeah. it again, do we? So, you know, that's yeah, an no, interesting, interesting for, for as intimate as this film is, and um, it has... Uh, a climax that's based that you know it's universe affecting. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, it's in, in many ways you know the, the writing is impressive, but I do still think, especially on a structural level, Nicole Perman's writing is missed in this movie. Yeah, it feels like it's, it's, it's mm. as you said before. It feels like lots of very effective separate scenes um, that cohesively it probably doesn't you know, gel, but I can think of the scenes that I really like. And then I think within the whole of the film, I think, well, yeah, there's less flow. But also, can we know how this film was meant to occur before, in the timeline, it was meant to take place before um, Captain America's Civil War. But then you've got, you've got some, it got a really nice cameo with Stan Lee in this one. And Stan Lee is saying, oh yeah, and one time I was a Federal Express man. And that's his cameo in Civil War. So I think um, at the time of this, Marvel themselves said, yeah, I think James Gunn may have said it, said, yeah, we, we kind of messed that up. Because obviously in hindsight, it doesn't flow as it should. It flows if when the film was released following Civil War, but in the actual chronological timeline. But well, we, we're going to plow on. We're going to plow on, plow on we regardless. About, Sabina, can I we mean... talk about Elizabeth Debicki as uh, the fantastic Aisha? This beautiful because she's six foot something, obviously out of heels, and she's this like fantastic golden like goddess kind of you know villain i do love their whole um the way they're in those kind of computer game pods and that the way they kind of get round killing all these spaceships with all these people in there effectively because nobody's in them you know it's a clever little way you can have loads of villains around you but not have any deaths yeah (laughs) but it's great yeah yeah i love that and it's fun it's just so much fun as well Mm. isn't it having all these kind of the idea of these computer game pods and all that kind of Mm. thing it's great and also oh there was something else i was going to say sorry i've just forgot i was going to say something about uh sliced alone as well he's a ravager he you know Mm good little cameo there so let's let's get into this we have at the end this these groups of different people he's in the beginning um, though as well you know he's in the beginning yes he is but in terms of at the end you get all the different disparate groups don't we amon do you can you say anything more about them yes so those groups that you see um they are members of the original guardians of the galaxy in the comic books and it was a nice little sort of Easter egg, if you will, for James Gunn to put all of them together in that final sequence as they're bidding farewell to Yondu. Don't expect to see a film sort of based around them anytime soon, um, but it was, it was a really, really cool Easter egg, and I'm happy that uh, James Gunn uh, saw fit to put that in. Yeah, because you've got Michelle Yeo in there as well, Ving Rhymes, uh, Miley Cyrus, I think, does a voice for one of them or something as well. Yes, that's right, yeah. It's pretty mad, pretty mad. Um in the end credits, um, what do we know about this Adam 
character. Right. So, yeah, Adam Warlock. Um, basically, in Phase Four of the MCU, um, Marvel are going to go, or at least the plan, uh, the last we heard, was to go full on cosmic, and James Gunn was going to play a pivotal. Uh, part in that, and I guess we can use this to sort of segue into uh, the whole James Gunn situation, which I think we have to touch on at least. Um, I've watched both of these films in preparation for this podcast recently. It is very, very, very difficult to imagine that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 not directed by James Gunn. These films yeah. are so personal and so much of... Uh, Compared to the, compared to all the other films in the MCU, the films which have the most of the director's DNA in the movie are these Guardians of the Galaxy films. Um, so, yeah, uh, James Gunn's going to be a pivotal part in the MCU sort of post Avengers Endgame, and you know with Guardians of the, with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three in limbo now, um, it'll be very interesting to see how the MCU proceeds. Um, I expect that we're going to get some sort of uh, big announcement of their Phase 4 slate a month or so after Avengers Endgame drops into cinemas, and I've seen it 50 times. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it'll be... I, I mean, we, we recently, uh, Taika Waititi was asked if he was going to direct it, and he said, no, those are James Gunn's movies, and he's absolutely right. Um, as talented as Taika Waititi is, as much as I really enjoy Thor Ragnarok, it just would not feel right with anybody other than James Gunn directed the Guns of the Galaxy Volume Three. So, and I think um, with with regard, I think like you said, there's all these things which are set up in this one, which we don't know whether it's going to go. But ultimately, in the first film, you have that is what it is setting up the characters and they go on their adventure and all that type of thing. They could have very easily just gone on another adventure, and I think especially with somebody like Yondu um, and the kind of deeper kind of layers that we see about his relationship with Quill, let alone the layers that we see between uh, Nebula and Gamora, all these types of things, which again are quite profound sentiments. They can only come from somebody who is really dug deep to understand these characters. So the idea of somebody else helming that, um, I mean, it's nice to know that I I believe Chris Pratt revealed that they are going to work with uh, his James Gunn script. Mm. Uh, But of course, you know, when you're on set, things change, Mm -hmm. people will improvise and, you you know, all of the say so as to what will go ahead and what will be kept and what won't be would obviously be down to the director. So the fact that he won't be the one making those calls can't you can't help but think you're not going to get it right. I mean, uh, or not not how it should be it'll be it's a shame it's a shame Can we also talk about uh mantis we haven't mentioned mantis yet but it, again she she goes into that whole thing in that she's a victim of ego too yeah. and the fact that she is this kind of controlled person who hasn't got a pres- yeah, an opinion on every you know what i mean yeah, she's I just, just wanted used. to give a shout out to the to the other like <laughs> the other woman character on the on the on the yeah, show because yeah. like, we're talking about how it's very dude heavy and it gets very you know dude-ish yeah. like it's about it's a film about father and sons and um but yeah she's a i think she's a nut pom's a, a great addition to, she's really sweet she's i like i think she's very she's good with drax i think drax starts to when he's saying no you know you're you're repulsive and then he says at the end you know you're beautiful <laughs> on the inside which i think is very drax is just like drax is just like you know it's like um 
soft it's like a soft mint you know <laughs> it's like got this hard shell and then it's like really just a sweet you know person in as he is in in his core he's got a good heart and um he, he yeah. has that moment when he's with Mantis yeah. reflecting on like his daughter and it's just it, it yeah breaks you remind me, me just, of her like, you know so innocent oh, oh he's you know um it's yeah it's really sensitively done and I think that goes back to James Gunn really in terms of him knowing these characters and knowing that he's that that he could go deeper into them um, and and expand yeah. on it with other characters. In the way he didn't want to kill off um, Yondu originally. He was like very reluctant to to kill him off. Um, but then he knew that's where the film sort of had to go. So, but it's the most sort of self, you know, Yondu who's been told he's not, you know, it's like he says to, I ain't, I ain't done nothing right my whole damn life, rat. <laughs> when he says to, to Rackin, sorry, sorry, Michael Rooker, that was a really bad impression. Um, but, you know, it's, he's just, you know, obviously he, he does what a dad would do for his son. Um, but, oh, God, that ending just, it just breaks me, you know, <laughs> every time it just, it's too much. Shall we get into the? Shall we get into the music? Yeah. We can't not get into the music, can we? I mean, man, this is this is what a, what an incredible soundtrack and score. I mean, the two were, were so strong. Amon, what it, you you must be like? This is one of the best now. So um, I'm gonna need about a couple of hours to discuss this. Is that okay? No, um... <laughs> a separate podcast series coming soon. Amon talking about Guardians of the Galaxy's music. Hey, that thing's gonna go viral. You watch. Um... <laughs> The music in uh, these films is great, as you say. Um, I'll start with the soundtrack. There's a lot of music here which I did not know prior to these movies. Um, And not only are they good tunes in and of themselves, but they have an impact on not only characters, but... um, what the film is doing at the time. Um, and I'm a big fan of sort of, you know, finding the right song for the right moment. Uh, James Gunn gets that. And it's not just because, you know, he's, you know, he makes the film and then in the edit bay, he then throws a track on top of it. He writes the songs into the movie and you can tell the impact that that has on the movie, uh, especially in the first one where, which uh, we, we, we didn't mention this in the, in the first part of the podcast, actually, but he gets his um, sort of hero name from his mother, which is a very great, a, I love that touch. Um, and yeah, the fact that sort of the music plays into his arc um, as sort of, you know, richly as it does is a testament to, you know, great writing. Um so on that level, it's working. But just, you know, I mean, and then you look at the, the second movie and how James Gunn uses the chain. Yeah. Uh, it's perfect. Uh, but she, he, he uses, it, uses it twice, and it's perfect both times. Um, yeah. and, both, and both of those sort of uh, soundtracks, also Mixed Volume 1 and also Mixed Volume 2, uh, they both top the Billboard charts for months, um, and deservedly so. Um, they're both... Uh, fantastic soundtracks, and I recommend seeking them out if you haven't already. Um, the only downside to it is that 
for some at least, the soundtrack overshadows the score, which I think is criminally underrated in many respects. Um, I will say this before I get to what I love about it. There is a lot, um, especially in the first Guardian score, which is just filler, you know, music that's not really standing out. That's just background music to the events that's happening on the screen. But when it does stand out, it is exceptional uh, on many occasions. I mean, I go through the first score and, you know, I pick out tracks like Sacrifice. I pick out tracks like uh, Groot Spores. In fact, any of the tracks that center on Groot are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them incorporate quiet elements um, like uh, like Groot Spores, which, uh, which plays, I believe, in the first movie when they just boarded um, Vernon's ship and uh, Groot has to light the way for them because Jack says he can't see. And if you just isolate that music, it's just stunning and beautiful. But the highlight of the first score easily is Black Tears, um, which is which plays when in, in the final battle between uh, the Guardians and uh, Ronan as, as it builds that big climax. And that track is phenomenal and very big orchestra. I've even mentioned the fact that the theme uh, that Tyler Bates has come up for these characters is absolutely perfect, very heroic, triumphant, um, and just perfect for the characters. Um, it bears actually some similarities to the Avengers theme, especially if you listen to it. If you listen to a track on the first score, on the first score called "The Kiln Escape," um, there's a few notes before uh, it, before we hear the um, actual Guardians theme in earnest. And it basically goes, which is exactly what Adam Sylvester does in the Avengers. It's actually insane. Um, nah. But, but um, the first score especially is great. The only, other, the only thing I would say, and you know, it's partially understandable at least why the soundtrack overshadows the score. And it's a problem with uh, Marvel movies that's not just limited to these Guardians movies. But the mixing uh, between the score and this and the special effects when everything's happening on screen does not favor the score the majority of the time. My favorite track on the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 score is called Two Time Galaxy Savers. The last 50 seconds on that track are unbelievably awesome. You cannot hear it at all, barely, during the film. Um, because, you know, the moment that it plays, it's when... Rocket and Yondu have just sort of come to save uh, Peter's Hyde and they're coming up with sort of all this gadgetry. And Rocket is talking and the special effects are booming and the score is like, the, you can barely hear it. But if you isolate that score as, as, you, as you can do if you, to, if you listen to two-time Galaxy Savers, that final 50 seconds is absolutely incredible. But the mixing doesn't favor the score, which is a shame because Tyler Bates does really good work. Um... There are moments, thankfully, in, in the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 score in, in, in which the score does stand out, mostly when, in the final act, um, the, that those scenes between Yondu and Quill, when Yondu is dying, I believe that track is called Dad. And that track hits all the emotional beats you could ever sort of, you know, hope for in that sequence and just makes it a thousand times more impactful. Um, and it's a shame, again, this score, because... 
because the soundtrack especially is very, very underrated. But if you go and listen to some of these tracks, Tyler Bates has created a really fantastic score on both occasions. Uh, and I really enjoy listening back to both of them. I think it's just a simple case of the the pop music that is used in in both films just is so memorable. It's just very easy to forget because you are absolutely right. Like I remember when I was just rewatching them, I was thinking about the scores and I was thinking it is really, you know, there's great music in this, you know. Um, but you obviously come away thinking about Mr. Blue Sky and you thinking exactly. about uh, Brandy. Which is and a great track, by the way, and it's used yeah, perfectly yeah, in the movie. Yeah, um, but it's funny. Remember, I said how in uh, the first Guardians of the Galaxy that Uga Shaka, I can't think about. I think about Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs. Well, Brandy, of course, uh, is in the classic McGee movie, Charlie's Angels. So <laughs> equally, I was a bit like the classic um, McGee yeah. movie. I don't know if anybody has ever used those words in the same sentence before. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay, um, shall we wrap that up? Are there any final thoughts about Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, the costumes. Yeah. Oh, yes, go for it. Sorry, Juliana Makoski. Yeah, we've already seen her work on um, Winter Soldier. Um, Then after she subsequently worked on Civil War, Um, she'd already worked on Civil War, obviously, when this was made, Um, Infinity War, and she's also doing the costumes for Endgame. Um, So for the first film, it was quite... In a way, they wanted, like, space cowboys, in a way, for the first film. But for this film, James Gunn wanted more of, a, like, a rock rock and roll feeling. Um, so everything was kind of pared down a little bit. So everything was more slim fit. Everything was a, a little bit more like everyday clothing as opposed to comic book clothing. A bit like how she, what she did for um, Civil War, you know, make these clothes a little bit regularly, you know, like people would wear them in the in the reg, in the normal world um but rockstar usually means a, a graphic t-shirt or like a band logo so um peter quill's wearing this t-shirt with with this sort of alphabet on it and it was from the clean language and apparently caused many a reddit um reddit thread because people were speculating what is you know what is written on quill's t-shirt and all it said was gear shift <laughs> so, which apparently people on Reddit did did get. It's very interesting. Like a lot of the work was was done in leather because leather is kind of easy to to manipulate um, if it's thin leather. Um, which is strange because on the first film, Peter Quinn's coat looks leather, but it was actually like a heavy cotton that was dyed. So I find it interesting for this one that the material that was kind of used was leather. Um, Aisha's look was very much in homage to Flash Gordon. And um, I haven't seen her in the comics, but apparently she doesn't look anything. She's very, um, very different to how she looks in the comics. So they wanted kind of Flash Gordon, but not, um, they didn't want it to go too Vegas, as they said. So not too glittery. So they threw in some navy, they threw in some brown to just like, tonally shift it down a bit um while the handmaidens um outfits are actually gold leather but um because elizabeth debicki as we said she's like this six foot she she's already six foot three she's like this tall goddess um her dress had a lot of molding and it couldn't be too heavy because otherwise she wouldn't have been able to move. So this is where I think it's, I always find this really fascinating that they have to use um, 
metallic beading, a lot of metal in there to mold it. Um, the skirt would like fan out like a tulip. So um, she had to, there had to be people like walking behind her to carry carry this massive dress for her. And she had two versions of the skirt. So one was for standing and uh, one was for sitting because obviously it wouldn't, it couldn't do both. It couldn't fan around her in a specific way if it was the, the same outfit. Um, Mantis was a new costume they had to create. So um, woven leather. She said, Makovsky, Judian Makovsky said that was a very fun one, fun one to work on. But they had to, obviously, you expect for uh, for um, Rocket and Groot, did they have to make the costumes? Of course they did. They made tiny costumes for Groot. They made a little costume for, for Rocket. They made exactly the same they would they did the ravager costumes but they made um smaller ones same material same fab um same fabric same zips everything made to scale so it was kind of like making doll clothes or making girls with like tiny children um they used them they said they used them on um on the set um for actors to relate to um but they said Baby Groot was everyone's favourite costume to make because it was just so sweet, so tiny, like a miniature version of a Ravager outfit. And I think that scene that I've I've expressed my love for <laughs> when um with that with the Yondu's arrow when they break out of the cell. Um and I think you see you see his his little outfit perfectly in in that that particular instalment. There we go. So that's your costumes sorted. Last thoughts on volume two. I think we're going to, do, 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 if we wrap it up, we'll go to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because we're already going long. And uh, we'll be able to talk a little bit on our last thoughts when we start ranking them in a little bit longer. So moving on, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. after this. So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. apparently runs concurrently at the same time as the Guardians of the Galaxy films, but have very little uh, connection really to them at all, except for, I think, a kind of pre-alien element. Would you think that's fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. That's fair to say. I mean, honestly, when I think of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season two, the thing which I remember most is that I loved every single new character they introduced, um, beginning with uh, Bobby, uh, who's, uh, oh, who's, yeah. Uh, yeah. who's Mockingbird, played, played by uh, Adrian Palicki, who, if memory serves, had had a Wonder Woman pilot, uh, which uh, was not taken to order because it was awful, basically. Um, but, uh, yeah, she fit that role like, a glove um and that was great and hunter her ex-husband their repartee and banter was a highlight uh but my favorite character who unfortunately uh died uh midway through the season oh. uh, agent triplet is my man 
he was great. I, yeah, he was. He was so good. Yeah. He was so good. Every yeah. second he was on screen, he was just so much fun, and he had so many, so many fun lines. Uh, there's one line uh, where I believe they're getting up for a mission, and he, he's impersonating um, uh, sort of a high-ranking military official. And uh, he sort of comes down the ramp for the plane. He's like, come on, girl, you know I made this look good. And it's just like, <laughs> you're the man. You're the man. I like the guy. Um, so, I like Agent Trip. I, I thought that was a huge loss. Huge losing loss. Agent Trip. That was, what uh, shame, you can just shame. tell he's having so much fun in that world too. So, uh, yeah, I hope uh, BJ Britt has gone on to have a long and prosperous career because he was a lot of fun. We also had um, Lucy Lawless, didn't we? Yes, Zena herself. Zena herself. It was great to see her, albeit very, very Huntley, short. wasn't it? Huntley, and you yeah. kind of, and it's really weird because she's like loses, she dies. She dies, right? But yeah, she yeah. Does, after all that, she cuts up. They have her arm <laughs> cut off, and then she dies. It was like, mm. girl, you know, you poor woman. So, mm. <laughs> what a way! And you just see her in flashbacks, oh. and then when she turns up in a flashback, you're supposed to look at her and be like, oh wow, there she is, as if yeah. we knew her. Yeah. We didn't. Yeah. We never did. I will say this. The show does a really good job in that. In that, before then, they hadn't really done too much when it came when it comes to uh, superpowers. But they really embraced that in season two, beginning with Daisy or Sky, uh, and then she sort of changes her name to Daisy. And I believe in season three, uh, she sort of gains her yeah. quake powers, and that's uh, sort of a big deal for this show. Um, and they do they do they do a lot with that power set um and they and they transition to sort of that kind of storytelling uh pretty well well they've that's the thing the, the whole um x-men let's be perfectly honest um it's the x-men they you know it really is and yeah. They, yeah and they can't and they and what's really kind of hilarious is how they can't say the word mutants so yeah, <laughs> yeah. things like uh gifted and uh enhanced that's and how they got around word. with them that's how they got around with um the twins in age of ultron they had to they obviously they couldn't say mutants at the time so they had to say enhanced yeah. rather than oh, gosh. something that yeah. eventually eventually oh. they refer they use the term inhumans and they settle on that but for the longest time it's like a thesaurus of all, all the synonyms for mutants yeah. without yeah. them saying it which is yeah. very great It'll be very interesting um, now that Disney, basically in a few months, will have the rights to all the mutants and everything else. Uh, very interested to see if and how uh, the TV properties will be affected by that change. Because um, yeah. mm. it's not just Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You've got shows like The Gifted. You've got shows like Legion, which has just been announced for its third and final season. So... Yeah, I'll be interested to see if the TV properties uh, will have if this will have an impact on on them. Well, I think as in terms of like crossovers and stuff like that, the few things I picked up. Obviously, you have Agent Carter and the Howling Commandos in the opening uh, of season two. Mm-hmm. That was nice to see. See how they're doing. Yeah, um, Peggy. And, then, yeah. and Peggy comes <laughs> back. I think. <laughs> randomly almost Peggy comes back in another episode when they're talking about, because the villain is, is a guy called Daniel Whitehall, who is, yeah. who is, who has never mm. aged, you know, and we realize it, it, through spurious means he's managed to keep alive, but nevertheless, you know, he, he's the villain who. Uh, Simon. Who, yes. Compliance will be rewarded. 
I know. <laughs> I'm ready to, to comply. comply. <laughs> <laughs> ready to comply. To comply. Um, but we also get. I mean, I remember when the start of the series happened. I felt like there was like they were trying to establish chemistry between like all the characters. They like obviously you had Bobby and Hunter on the one side. You have Fitz and Simmons as well, and then obviously the kind of. I thought they were even alluding to maybe Trip and Sky, or you know, you know, at the start of the series. But obviously, Trip is too good for sky anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true true but of course her dad is played by Kyle McLaughlin oh, I love him he's just the best he just comes in he's just playing he's like you know he's great at being playing weirdos you know I would, just I like would, this I would. brilliant weirdo who else would you put in this really crazed role I think he's a bit too He's a bit too mad for me. Uh, <laughs> He's doing sometimes. what he does best. Come on. <laughs> uh, no. um, but yeah, so and then you have then you have the whole thing with the real shield, which I thought was just really weird. How they literally clearly were there, like let's have this other organization which sprang up in the wake of Winter Soldier, and they'll call it you know something like the real shield, and they were like, why don't we just call it? The real shield, and that's literally <laughs> what they called it, and they yeah. just that's how they separate it. Shield bad. Mark II. Um, <laughs> They thought they who's it? Sky is sent to this house when she first gets her powers, which they refer to as the house that Banner built. And there's a big punch in the wall where apparently he punched the wall. And Steve Rogers spent a couple of weeks there after he defrosted. <laughs> apparently <laughs> yeah. so. Apparently so. Wave on defrost. <laughs> and then of course, and, but they also kind of tease with like Ward how like maybe he's all right. And, and maybe maybe they're going to be teams again, and then but then they kind of undercut it very soon after. Like, no, no, he's awful, and every single time they kind of yeah. and they play with that. And every single time I'm watching, I'm like, if you even think of making him good again, I will be like, this is not right. You know, he's he's bad. That's it. I don't. And thankfully, they do stick to that. That's I'm good. not that. Yeah, I don't find him that interesting as a as a baddie no. or as or as a good guy. Um, I yeah, I, I don't find it very endearing. I have to say, and I'm I'm sorry. Well, I that's, think that's the point. Yeah, that's the character. <laughs> but even when he was good, even when he was like a good guy, I didn't find him like that. I I was never like no, his eye jar. I was like yeah, okay, mm. <laughs> because well. The, the, as they get to the end of uh, epic, because it's only episode one to nineteen, we'll discuss now. Because then, it, and the next bit is uh, the next Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Um, but as they get to the end, they reveal Bahrain, which is like the infamous May backstory, and mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting. And obviously, like you mentioned before, Sky, you know, we re- is revealed as Daisy Johnson. So is is Daisy Johnson in any way a thing in the comics at all? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, she she is quick. Um, she she doesn't take on that moniker until I believe season three. Um, but yes, uh, she is actually the, the times which I've seen her, not in the comics uh, anyway, uh, in the cartoons has been with the Teen Titans. So she's mixed it up. Mm. She's mixed it up with them a few times. She's been. Um, uh, tricked by Deathstroke into becoming her protege or his protege rather, um, but uh, yeah, she's definitely um, sort of a, uh, a big deal in the comics, and she's been in Agents of Shield before, along with Mockingbird. Um, and there's been several sort of issues where the characters have been in that guys, um, but yeah, it was good to it was it was it was a good reveal to have a transition into that character. 
And I think over the course of the sort of subsequent seasons, which uh, we will eventually discuss, uh, Chloe Bennett grows into that role very, very well. Uh, so yeah, reminds me of uh, Anna Paquin in uh, in X Men. Yeah, when she's yeah. quite young and learning her skills. Obviously, it's a different skill set, but I you know reminds me of that kind of that kind of character. Yeah. Um, there's then when we get towards the end of the series with all these kind of inhumans, but I don't even think they're referring to them as inhumans at this point. I think at this point they are referring to them as enhanced or powered people or something. Mm. Um, and, and then they say, uh, no one except for the twins, of course, and they're in Sokovia. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking, mm. oh, you know, with regards to like the powers that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And then you get this whole kind of connection in this final scene when uh, Coulson calls Maria Hill, um, I, and thought, says I, thought, this, I thought we were saving this for age watch. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is in episode nineteen. Like we oh, don't really? we don't know what this is linking to. My point okay. being is that he just uh, he all he says, isn't it, is the Theta Protocol is ready. But we don't know what Avengers. that is. We, we don't know what it is. He goes, yeah, time to bring in the Avengers. And we're like, mm. okay. Mm. Um, so it's quite weird. We don't know where that's leading, of course. And then we, we go to see uh, Age of Ultron. Well, I mean, I believe around that time, I think after that episode, actually, because they highly advertised the episode and said, like, we're going to do like a sneak peek to Age of Ultron after this episode, stick around. Um, I remember that quite clearly. Uh, so, you know, we knew that there was some sort of link, but you know, you don't really find out what that link was until the end of Age of Ultron. Um, mm. So, but uh, and that and and Doctor List, who's in uh, Age of Ultron at the start, he's in a number of episodes in Agents of Shield prior to uh, turning up to Age of Ultron. So it's kind of interesting that in these early seasons we get to know this character, uh, Doctor List, um, and then of course he escapes. Uh, um, we may see him again. I don't want to, I want to spoil it for anyone, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but okay. Um, that that's agents of shield season two, episode one to 19, the last end of the series we will talk about, uh, on our next episode, but we've got to rank both the guardians of the galaxy films. So brace yourselves. Easy. Okay, we've got to rank the Guardians of the Galaxy films, both of them, somehow. Um, Amon, I believe you are more sure of yourself than uh, myself and Sabina. I've been sweating this for like <laughs> two weeks. It's a weird one. I'm going to get okay. yelled at on Twitter. I am a Oh my gosh. Okay, Amon, go for it. Where, where, where do they rank with you? So the correct ranking, which every person should... No, I'm joking. Um... <laughs> I'll go from the top to the bottom. So, number one, Captain America Winter Soldier. Number two, Avengers Assemble. Number three, Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah, interesting. There it, there it is. Number four, Iron Man. Number five, Thor. Number six, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Number seven, Captain America the First Avenger. In fact, now that I say that... I'm thinking of switching. <gasps> go there on. You go. Okay. <laughs> Not as easy as you think, is it? 
<laughs> okay. No. Oh, oh, that's so tough. Um, okay, okay. Number five, Thor. Number six, Captain America, the first Avenger. Number seven, Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two. Number eight, Iron Man 3. Number, <gasps> nine, number nine, Iron Man 2. <laughs> number 10, Thor, the Dark World. Number 11, The Incredible Hulk. Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'll go next because I, I can imagine okay. Sabina is still sweating bricks. I'm uh, sweating. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm finding this more tricky. The bottom line is, is that my Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, the Dark World at the end, I like, they're the films <laughs> that ultimately I'm not a big fan of. So I can just like, they're not an issue. Um, but I think I'm going to place uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in third place. Wow. Um, you know, wow. above Thor uh, and above Iron Man 3, above Incredible Hulk, above Cutter The only two which I think are better that is Winter Soldier and Avengers Assemble. And I think the first Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm going to put fifth place. So my top five would be Guardians of the Galaxy in fifth place, uh, Iron Man 3, Thor, um, sorry, sixth place it would be. So, yeah, Iron Man 3, Thor, and then Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Winter Soldier, Avengers Assemble number one. Yeah, that's me. Sabina, okay. it's over to you. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I. Do, I really don't care. If you know me on Twitter, I really don't care about any, any opinion <laughs> of me. Stupid. I'm just like. I'm just. I don't care. Guardians of the Galaxy two. I'm gonna put. I, do you want me to do it chronologically? No, I'll just tell you straight off. I'm gonna put Guardians of the Galaxy two as um, sixth place, sandwiched between First Avenger and Thor. Okay. I love the first Avenger a lot. I do love that one a lot. And I'm going to put the first Guardians directly under it. So I've got the Incredible Hulk as the bottom, followed by Thor the Dark World, followed by Iron Man 2. And I was, you know, I was really, I was tempted to put them below Iron Man 2. And I thought, no, I would be lynched for that. So then I've got, after um, going upwards, I've got the first Guardian. Then I, oh, no, I haven't. What have I got? I've, I've got. <laughs> Myself. I think Help we need. To, I think. I, I think we need to do what Amon does from this point forward and just rank yeah. going order. Okay, Captain America. Okay, start from the top. Captain America: Winter Soldier, number one. Avengers: Assemble. Iron Man three. Then followed by Iron Man. Followed by Captain America: The First Avenger. Followed by Guardians of the Galaxy two. Above okay. four. Followed by the first Guardians. Guardians. Oh. To, oh, right. So they're right next to each other. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to do it like that because I was tempted to put them below Iron Man, but then I thought, I don't know. I was tempted to change. The, but then I was like, oh, I want to change my ordering of Thor. So, yeah, that's how it goes. So it goes um, Guardians 2 is in sixth place, followed by Guardians in seventh place, followed by Thor, followed by Iron Man 2, followed okay, by okay. Thor, the Dark World. Then, All right. Yeah, I'm, it's going to be divisive from now on. It's worth go- pointing out, though, at this stage that we have now ranked 11 films. Um, but you know what? I could be... reorder them instantly. Sabina, Sabina, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, because it changes. We were saying this on... You know, I've been saying this every time I... No, no, because I caught... I caught... What did I catch a bit of? Yeah, I was... You know, um, the first Avenger was on TV again over the weekend, and I'm like, "Oh, this film's so good!" So you know, I could have put that higher to begin with. So I don't know. 
I never rank things. I say this to you. I don't rank things. It's, I don't give you know star what? ratings. And Honestly, I just, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a weird boy thing to do where we rank things. It is things such and a we... boy thing. You have to rank stuff because this is better. Just like what you like. I know. Cares, I know. You're, you know? Abs- you're absolutely right. And on the plus side, we all like all the films. So there's just, no bickering. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. So that's where we position them. And uh, we'll leave that. That's our episode <laughs> on the Guardian of the Galaxy. The bodies have been left strewn you, on the pro- floor. I promised you high energy this week. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Screen Insight. Uh, Sabina, where can people find more of your work? I'm on Twitter. And please don't yell at me. I'm at Sabina Stent on Twitter. And Amon, what about you? I'm at a woman on Twitter. Okay, Uh, and we'll see you in the next episode, which will be our Age of Ultron one. We're going to have to have a nice creative title for that bad boy. So we'll see you then. I should have made more of an issue about the fact that Amon will be talking about Age of Ultron, but... We're into the end game, and we're going to be talking about a rumor or, or a talking point. Not a rumor. It's not necessarily a rumor at all. It might. <laughs> Sounding so excited. <laughs> Amon has something regarding my favorite character, Nebula. <laughs> so, in the comics, um, in the Infinity War uh, comic, um, Nebula has a massive part to play. She. Uh, manages to snatch the gauntlet away from Thanos and click her fingers and reverse things. Um, now, for Avengers Endgame, there's been sort of uh, lots of speculation about what Nebula's role might be. Um, and I do think, I, I put out a poll a few months ago, uh, which character is going to get the final killing blow on Thanos. And Nebula... Uh, was a character who she got a number of votes and deservedly so. There's a good chance, I think, that Nebula is going to have a really big impact on things in Avengers Endgame. Um, As I say, in the comics, she grabs the gauntlet. She's the one who sort of um, uses it apart from Thanos. Um, So considering also all that she's lost and all that she wants to gain back with Gamora. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's very, very likely for many people that Gamora is going to uh, come back to life in some form. Um, I think Nebula is going to have something, something to do with that. Basically what I'm saying is Nebula is going to have a big role to play in Avengers Endgame. It's my prediction. Um, I, from your comic book research... I, and the fact that we are aware of some time... Well, are we aware? I think we are aware of the time travel element. Yeah. Um, I think you are right. Yeah. <laughs> think that, that, that's what I can say. I think that's a... Because, again, she's an incredible character, and I think ultimately there's a side of me which, yes, I'd love her to be in loads of films and doing everything, but reality is that her arc has kind of finished, you know? Um, it was always about her and Gamora and making amends and all that kind of stuff, and that, to some extent, 
may be wrapped up in that context. Um, and then what? And that's kind of it. Um, but it would work very well. And, I, and as a big fan, I would be all for it. Sabina? Yeah. I mean, um, obviously, we saw her in the, on that list, that nice, succinct 30-second trailer, building stuff with Tony. So I think she's going to have like, yeah, going to have her and Tony you know, busting out of space, fixing the ship. Um, because, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does. Um, I hope she's she's um, the one who delivers a final blow, maybe. She can get her, her own back on the man she, who tortured yeah. her throughout her life. Yeah. Because, he built, you know, obviously she was never Gamora. She was never as good as Gamora. Um, I think it would just be poetic justice if she, she was to do that. This is, I think this is the thing is that it, when you watch the Guardians of the Galaxy films, they a lot of it feels a lot like Infinity War in terms of obviously the space setting and the worlds and the planets and all that kind of stuff. There's something very neat about that. So I can imagine watching the Guardians of the Galaxy films leading to Infinity War and then Endgame, there would be a nice collection there to watch of Nebula's story, which would work very neatly indeed. Yeah. Okay. That's our thought for you if you're looking forward to Endgame, and we'll speak to you very soon. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child. Things are gonna get easier Ooh, child, things will get brighter Someday, yeah Put it together and we'll get it undone Someday when you hit it much lighter Someday, yeah We'll walk in the rays of a beautiful sun Someday when the world is much brighter Be brighter. Ooh, child, things will be brighter.